Metapodcast, the integral stage series where we interview interviewers, broadcast broadcasters, and start conversations with conversation starters. We're talking with the folks who try to bring forward integrative, meta-level, higher, deeper, and transformative perspectives through podcasts, YouTubery, and other online media. Who are they? What do they have in common, and how can we amplify, clarify, and interlink them? That's the project, and helping me think, feel, and sense my way through it today is Schloss Josberg. Did I pronounce that correctly? No. <laughs> I mean, Josh Sloshberg. That's pretty Josh good. Slosberg, something like that. That's, that's <laughs> better than most. No, that's it exactly. All right. Why don't you tell people where they can find some things you've made? Well, I make lots of different things, so it depends what you're looking for. So I live in many different worlds at once. So I do an environmental podcast. That's pretty much what I'm most excited about right now, that's something I just started up because I'm an environmental journalist and I come from an environmental advocacy background. I also do some coaching stuff, working primarily with introverted men. So that's one of the other ways I get stuff out to the world with some overlap, but not a ton. And I also write horror fiction. So it's biological horror fiction. So that ties into the environmental stuff. It also ties into the internal stuff, which goes into the coaching stuff. I have a a writer's collective I helped create called Denver Horror Collective, and we also publish. So those are my three compartments right now. I try to intermesh them, and the way that I have been bringing aspects together has been through my studies of spiral dynamics and some of the integral theory stuff. And most of that has just me been learning and talking with people online, but I'm starting to integrate aspects of that and making it more relevant in terms of not just understanding, but how I can move forward more in the world. What do you think those crossover points are between developmental models and environmentalism? Well, there are lots of ways to go into that. I'm reading a book right now called Integral Ecology. I'm only about a quarter of the way through because it's an 800-page book. So maybe sometimes next year I'll be done with it. But it does talk about different stages of being an environmentalist, which is really interesting. And I think I pretty much agree with it. And I can't recite it off the top of my head, but it goes into these different levels of how you might interact with the natural world in terms of advocacy of it from different levels on the spiral, let's just say. And I, I find that really interesting. I could grab that and read from that otherwise, but just that concept I think is really, really fascinating. And I've seen a bit of my own evolution. I didn't know what was going on, frankly with myself in terms of I was a radical environmentalist and none of my views actually changed into as to what I believed in, but I started being more interested in other perspectives and not just saying, well, that's evil. And then also saying, okay, well, maybe that's mostly wrong, but oh, they, they have that one nugget that these other folks don't. And then I started looking into spiral dynamic stuff and it was dabbling in some of the more integral thinking stuff. So that has been interesting to me. And in my Green Root podcast, which I just started a couple months ago, I, I basically wanted to put out into the world environmental notions. And I would say a lot of it comes from the radical environmentalist perspective. So I'm, an, I'm a wilderness guy. I do believe in protecting landscapes that are behind me, real ones or, or virtually, whatever. And I think that's really important and central to humanity. But I also think that the groupthink echo chamber of just saying one thing over and over to the people who you already agree with is not very effective. 
And so in the conversations that I have on the Green Room podcast, not always, but sometimes we get into some of those other areas. So just today I recorded one that'll be out in a few weeks about sustainable forestry, right? So the idea of you protect wilderness areas, but then there's some areas where we're probably going to cut trees and stuff like that. So I talked to this eco-forester guy and we did eventually get into stuff about groupthink and just consciousness and the shadow, Jungian shadow stuff. So that's where I've been taking some of the environmental stuff, but I'm sprinkling it in because it's a little much for a lot of people and it's very challenging to certain perspectives, but that would be one example. That's terrific. It- um, I was trying to think, you know, where I've had a personal connection with developmental models and ecology. And one of the things I thought of was I grew up really rural, had a lot of wilderness immersion when I was a kid and then ended up in the city, not too big a city, but still after a while I started feeling trapped and I had to keep, you know, making an intentional practice of going outside the city limits to a place where I could feel that the proportion of me and nature was appropriate again. Right. And one of the things I really noticed is to get there, you have to go through increasingly rural communities. And many times they're the worst, right? As soon as you get out of the city, suddenly people are throwing their garbage on the side of the road, which is also something I'd noticed when I lived in Japan. As soon as you go around the hill where the city can't see you, people are dumping bags of trash on the ground. And it really made me think about the way that a more primitive level, so to speak, is more embedded in nature, but because they're more embedded in nature, it's harder for them to care about it. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's a really excellent point. And yeah, it can be confusing, I think, to people. But so a lot of the folks who say are a part of the industrial forestry world, so they're doing lots of clear cutting. Ironically, most of those folks live in the woods. So I do think they actually, they do have a certain connection. They do have a certain appreciation for it. Otherwise they wouldn't be out there, but it's certainly not to the to the same extent so what what this integral ecology book was talking about is developing along your biocentric line so the idea of actually appreciating the natural world for what it is and certainly what's ironic is a lot of the people who do tend to at least profess caring most about the natural world come from cities and i think that's partially because there's lots of reasons. I think it's partially a little bit of BS as in they don't actually understand nature red and tooth and claw and they romanticize it for sure. But I do think a lot of those folks maybe have been separated enough from it where they want to, they crave it again. Whereas if you're always in it, you start taking it for granted, right? You grow up in a certain area and like, Oh, this is not this, this place ain't shit. And then you go back years ago. It's actually kind of beautiful here. I just had a prejudice against it. So it is that, it is that weird weird thing. And, and not to say that folks who are in rural areas don't always go deeper into the spiral or, or work on development stuff. But I think a lot of folks who are in poverty, which tends to be in rural areas, if your life conditions are such that you're just trying to survive, yeah, you don't get to think about the beauty of nature. You don't really even have that luxury. You have to have a certain amount of leisure and then that yeah. separation, and then maybe going back to the, to the forest again with a different so you need a supportive conditions in your life to give yes. you the leisure to think about it. Um, actual experiences of nature so you know what you're talking about, but also a kind of distance so that you can recognize it as something that needs to be cared about and morally related to. Yeah. And this integral ecology book is really challenging a lot of my perceptions in terms of I do I do have a bit of the romanticized version of nature, but at the same time I don't as in I've spent a lot of time 
hiking through some forest to the point where I'm like, right now this looks pretty ugly because I'm scared because I'm 15 miles from anyone. I'm supposed to meet my friend on this other side of this wilderness area. I can't find the trail. And all of a sudden just everything cast a pall and that idea of just, oh, it's like a pretty pastoral, you know, Beethoven sixth playing in the background. That's not really the heart of nature. And I do think some people get in touch with that and then they actually do start to fear it too much. You have to have a healthy fear of it. So environmentalists who don't also have fear of it, I, I sort of think that they're coming at it from a little bit more of a, a superficial, superficial level. You, you don't have to almost die, but you know, I've been in blizzards where just like, this is not a, most of my cross country skis that I do in the mountains are just like da 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 da. That's what it is the whole time. It's just da. And then there was this time when I was coming back and the winds were picking up and I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Oh, look at this blowing wind and the blowing snow. Well, that's, that's interesting. And I was kind of pushing up against the wind. I'm like, this is fun. And then it was a whiteout. And I was like, this is okay. This is, this is survival. I couldn't see. I literally couldn't see more than just right below my feet. And I had to stay on the trail to get a few miles back to my car. And I saw all these fake paths off to the side. If I take any one of those, I might be out here the full night and I'm not going to survive because I can't even light a fire. In the so that, that perspective of nature is a deeper level perspective that I think you have to go through the, the, the love of it and into the fear to get that proper respect. That's very interesting. It seems like it brings in a lot of shadow work, which is probably also applicable to some of your uh, horror work and work with the introverted male psychology. Um, it's coming to, I'm trying to bring it more and more together. These all sort of started, here's this thing I'm randomly interested in, here's this. I think there is a connection behind it that I just haven't figured out or I am figuring out, or maybe I'm just making the connection, who knows. I've sort of traditionally used the distinction between nature and natural in my own mind. Where like natural is something we definitely like, but doesn't apply to all nature, right? We, you know, like a gardener, you know, or someone making a Zen flower arrangement, you're, you're working with it to make it natural because natural is something humans work well with. Whereas nature is something that's indifferent to us. Might be great, might be the worst thing in the world. Indifferent is the right word because it's not hostile. Nature does not want to kill us. It doesn't even care. And it, and it doesn't want to help us either. But if you nowhere to look you can obviously we survived on this planet we're we're alive and it's bountiful but at the same time yeah it's indifferent is a is a great word for that yeah and there is that concept of nature what in that integral ecology book it talks about three different versions of nature and i can't recite the uh, unfortunately because it's a little complex but, but it's they have like little nature with a a lower case n and then they have it with a capital n and then they have it with all capitals and so there are different ways of looking at that term for sure. Our social notion of what nature is seems to have undergone a transformation over the course of the 20th century where we started out thinking, hey, we'll get parks and uh, you know, we'll have human progress and there'll be this nice little nature adjunct to our society. But the more we scientifically delved into it at different scales, the more we found that it was much vaster and more pluralistic and multifarious than we expected, that it became, um, this is where it might feed into the horror thing, right? That there's a certain Lovecraftian nature to nature, right? That it's, 
strange and incomprehensible and scary and multi-tentacled and doesn't follow any straightforward path that we can predict. The closer you look, the more it comes around from the other side with five limbs and four eyes, you know? <laughs> or tiny, tiny viruses that are just as frightening, if not more so, than a massive creature. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then if you zoom in on them, they, they look exactly like the most terrifying massive creature you could imagine. Yeah, they are basically tiny Cthulhu's, yeah. So that's an interesting thing where you get that shift from, let's say, a modern to a postmodern notion of nature, where the number of scales and perspectives you're taking into account is suddenly vast and, in a way, dehumanizing and disconcerting. And I think that's one of the things that some of that 1930s, 40s horror brought forward was our rational scientific modern model is failing us. If we look more closely, it's terrifying or at least deeply uncanny in all directions. Yeah. And that's interesting because, yeah, I was always into Lovecraft stuff when I grew up and I always, oh, and then I'm into nature here, but maybe you bring up a point there. It actually influenced my views on nature. I think the, the scary stuff, like for me, it's always a little bit tongue in cheek as in ultimately you come around and you realize it's, it's all okay. But so I kind of like playing in that dark realm, not to be, not that I, I savor murder. I, I actually don't, I don't really like grisly stuff, but I do like when all of a sudden you're da, 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 da. And then it's like, mm, what's going on here? And that can be in the midst of a psychedelic trip or just in your daily life with a form of anxiety or an illness. And I think that is at the heart of, of a lot of nature and, and, and that human connection where, where it's almost like we're a part of it. And then like, I started thinking, no, 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 we're separate from it. And now we're a part of it again. But I do think that the distinction of here is a human created environment versus this is a non-human created environment is still a distinction worth making. And I think some, some forms of thinking, sure, at a certain level, it's all one. And I get that. So there's, some folks would say that's at a, you know, a tier two, like a, a turquoise or, or whatever color you want to ascribe to it, where you're like, a nuclear reactor is just as natural as uh, this mountain landscape behind me. And sure, I think if you pull the lens back far enough, that's absolutely true. But the idea that therefore I will treat the, the nuclear reactor as the same viewpoint with this it's as benign as a mountain landscape i don't think that's true so we do have to make distinctions but but i get it and i'm starting to get closer to grasping that but i do think that therefore it's all fine that whatever happens maybe ultimately it is maybe i'm just not at the level of consciousness where i can accept everything as it is but i i think ultimately there is a toxicity in not in pretending every single thing that happens should not be addressed and i think there is that fine fine line between like my activist self is like i gotta fight against everything well maybe this isn't actually something worth fighting or maybe you're not actually assessing the problem or maybe that's not the way to do it you know that transcend and include instead have this a part of it or kind of go with the flow a more Taoist perspective but there i still think there is a time to say you know what maybe just because a uh, a caterpillar machine is natural doesn't mean that I should be okay with that barreling through the wilderness. And that still is in line with an integral view. I could be wrong. 
Yeah, that's part of why I find I have to tease apart natural from nature, or at least have two concepts where one is specifically arranged in a way that's not only aesthetically attractive, but is workable with human beings and enriches the system. And the other one is just whatever happens to exist at any scale, no matter what. For sure. And there's a thing, I mean, I think one of the ways integral theory approaches this, my sense is that the quadrants and the lines give us a way of thinking about this differently. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, it might all look wonderfully natural from a certain expanded perspective, but that doesn't mean your moral expanded perspective has to treat them all the same way. That's a good point. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And, and so this stuff, yeah, the integral theory stuff, wrapping my head all around that stuff, that's, I definitely find a lot of the quadrant stuff a little more complex and I have to have to look at the book to remind myself of all that stuff, but I've been incorporating it more into my frame. I, the spiral dynamics concept is a little bit easier to access, but I do find obviously they work in tandem and, and looking at it more, this integral ecology book has been really instrumental because it gives specific examples of going through all of those different quadrants for everything. Like looking at a, you know, yeah, looking at say logging in a forest and the different perspectives of here's the logger's perspective from the inside. Here is the indisputable fact that when this tree is cut, it is no longer there and soil erosion happens. Here's the system over here. That's a part of all that. So I find it very useful. It, it does very quickly get out of, I think, most people's depths, including my own. And so what luckily, so my, my, my hamstring and at the same time, my strength is the fact that I can be a little dense. So the fact that I'm dense means I have to simplify everything to absorb it, which means then I can be okay at actually being a journalist or being an activist or being a writer because I can then break it down to very simple. I'm a, I'm a better writer than I am a speaker. I'm a writer because I like going back and refining and refining, but I've gotten pretty damn good at being able to get that out there, usually because I have to dumb it all down for it to get through my thick head. So what I'm trying to do in, say, the, my podcast, the Green Root Podcast on environmental stuff, sprinkle this stuff in, not make it too heavy too soon, but give a topic. I, I would say a lot of the folks that are listening to that are in, in the green altitude or the center of gravity there. That's the wave of development where it's, you know, I love nature and some of them tend to be very radical. So some of them may even be coming from a blue amber perspective of right versus wrong, or maybe even more an egocentric, like it's me versus the world. And I have to fight for the nature. And this is the only thing that matters and blah, blah, blah. So I, I'm trying not to blow folks out of the water but so here's something comfortable. All right, we're talking about wilderness. Cool, I'm gonna bring in a little bit of this other sprinkle here. And then we're gonna talk a little bit about, it's your perspective on it. Because ultimately what I, what I came to the realization of is, so environmental activist, right? I'm like using emotion and putting all this stuff out there. Years ago, it was, I was successful in that. I got in the media a lot, people knew who I was. I got. But I realized, am I, I'm not changing anyone's minds. These are already people who already agree with me. So they're patting me on the back just as a way to pat themselves on the back. So then I started eventually becoming an environmental journalist. And I stepped away from that largely because it's, it's full of ideologues and censors who are at a particular level of development. And they will not allow viewpoints that are more integral, as in they, it's, it's basically become advocacy. So even though it's limiting in just providing people facts at all, it's still a worthwhile thing. You can't even do that with a lot of editors. So I've realized I'm going to go off on my own 
and do more and more stuff. But the, the ultimate realization I came to is it's not the advocacy in the streets, which is fine and probably essential as well, or even the here's the factual nerd information and now you'll care. That's important too, right? But that doesn't really matter as much as it's, it's your whatever wave of development you're at. For instance, if you, most people who, all right, so let's say you go out into nature and sometimes you see at the end of a rural road, there's a sign, no dumping, fine, a hundred dollars or something like that. And most of us are like, do we, ever, do we, I don't need a sign. Like most people who are environmentalists, we don't need a sign. The other folks who need the sign aren't going to pay attention to the sign unless it's, there's lots of surveillance or something like that. So ultimately the goal is we all have to get to the point where we just value the natural world. And so we're going to do the right thing automatically. And that's, that's a tough pill to swallow, but ultimately I think that's what need, what needs to be. So we need to make sure that at least there's no blockages along where people can develop. And ironically for the environmental thing, it's like, this is the weird conflict I've been coming up against. It's like, all right, if it's true for people to appreciate the environment more, they have to get to a stage, at least maybe say like a green stage or whatever, where they care about the natural world. Ironically, they have to be above a certain level of poverty to really do so, which means economic systems, which for right now, I, I know there's better ways to do it, but is capitalism. So it's almost like, so you're saying I have to, to get more people at the altitude or the wave of development where they care about the natural world, I have to make sure that they make more money and buy more shit, basically. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems like you have to go through that phase. I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I think there's multiple ways to go through each stage. And some of those ways are informed by subsequent stages in which case we could smooth out the process, right? There's a lot of different ways we could, like uh, green and teal levels of economic justice could set up a consumer society that produces a lot of wealth because it circulates a lot of wealth, but doesn't do it the same way we did in the 1950s. For sure. Yeah. Uh, but there's a, there's a problem with developmental approaches, um, you know, that may be how reality is, but the problem is it takes time to develop. Right? And when you look at the ecological situation, do we have time for enough people to get up to the level of spontaneous appreciation or not? I don't know. That's the thing. Sometimes I wonder if these time constraints are, are arbitrary. I've always been, it's urgent, it's urgent, it's urgent. Now I'm like, it's pretty urgent, but let's at least, the analogy I use is an EMT, right? So when EMTs deal with somebody who has a heart attack, they don't run in and they're like, oh my God, I'm gonna go to the, they're, they're calm, they're moving, they're not wasting time, but they're, they're very efficient. They almost, I've seen people do that and I'm like, you should hurry up. But no, that's, that's rush and that's haste makes waste, right? So I think there is that fine line between knowing it's urgent and not just jumping into it and being totally ineffective and panicked, which I think is what a lot of the environmental movement is. There's a... The Roman Emperor Augustus had a motto that was on a bunch of flags for the army. It was, make haste slowly. Uh, yeah, well, that's, that's <laughs> kind of it. That's kind of it. And being mindful and you get there and, and you're more effective in that regard. So theory. much of this is about, like you say, economics, um, which is also politics, which is also public communication. And I think one of the interesting things in terms of an integral model is 
trying to take seriously the different perspectives and value sets of people you have to communicate with. A lot of that falls into the conventional left-right spectrum, whether that's a polarity at every level or whether we really mean like an older level and a newer level. There's different ways to go at it. Yep. But I, I think I read somewhere, it might have been in a book by Jonathan Haidt, where people who were identified as being on the left could hear a message that was, the environment's really important and we have to do things for it. And that same message to people who identified with the right was immediately rejected. But it wasn't rejected if it was phrased differently. If the phrasing was, hey, this is the greatest nation in the world. Our nature is the greatest nature in the world. And therefore, we have to be willing to take responsibility and sacrifice to protect it from outside invaders and destabilization. Right? So there's a lot of, if you just rearrange the prioritization in the communication, sometimes you get amazing results. I agree. Yeah. So that's basically trying to reach the, the blue amber there. I came up with this term. It's interesting. I did a podcast called something about being an ecosystem patriot. It's just a word I made up because I, I don't know. It, it didn't really have a lot of depth to it. It was just me playing around with a concept because I think like when I defend America, I don't know, I would defend my land base though. I would defend my watershed and my land. That's what I have. I pledge allegiance to the land. That's, that's what I appreciate most about America. The people are fine, but. That would be interesting. Like imagine that was the, the subtitle to the Green New Deal is defend your land. Well, but here's the thing. I got a lot of pushback from green environmentalists around using that term patriot because they don't like that concept. And I was like, okay, well, we need to reframe that. So to them, they're just like patriot, ew, because they probably had a, they repress, I mean, they, if they hate their country, which I used to hate America, I think a lot of what's going on in America is dead wrong, but the idea of hating the country I live in, I obviously still live here. It's sort of silly. It's, and so I think they're at that, either they generally do hate the country, which is sort of dysfunctional, or they're at, they're repressing a thing. And so they can't tolerate that concept. So I do think that that could reach maybe some other folk. The term ecosystem would not though that in blue, that's like an amber is like, ew, what are you talking about hippie? So, but that's, what's so frustrating about this is, so you have to use different language to talk to everyone. And then if you actually, if you get too, too wonky and nerdy, I think you, you do cut off <laughs> everyone is what I've found. So I've found that I have to be cautious about how much I get into this stuff because basically what happens is, so I did this in my journalism. I, I attempted what I believe was aspects of, of some maybe teal yellow journalism. I, maybe I'm tooting my own horn here, but I think occasionally there are some aspects of it. And what I did was basically just legitimate journalism, which doesn't happen anymore, was I got all the perspectives I could. I didn't just get one perspective. I didn't just get two perspectives. I got 15 perspectives. There was one in particular, there was a rally that was happening in Boulder. I was writing, I wrote a piece for Boulder Weekly, which strangely they gave me the front page because the editor liked me. I, I don't know what the hell happened. That was like a glitch where Boulder Weekly would let me write all these articles for a while. And then the editor changed over and then that they put a kibosh on that. But I interviewed, so it was supposedly this right wing thing. It's not worth getting into. This was several years ago before everything went completely nuts. There was some, basically just like some conservative guys were, were doing a rally. They weren't Nazis. It was, it was a free speech rally kind of thing. And of course it was the, the thing that we hear every day here. And I went into the crowd there and I talked, I talked to a mask wearing Antifa person. I talked to 
a one of the rally leaders of the group. I even talked to a couple people. So there were some people who had some weird, I don't know if they were supremacists or what. The minute they showed up, they shut the rally down because the people were like, no, 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 this is not our thing. We're conservatives, but we're not these. We're shutting this down. So I, the, the, the actual Nazi people, if, if that's what they even were, they didn't, they didn't even want to talk to me. And, you know, I'd have to think twice if, if I was going to quote, you know, some sort of thing. I'm a Jew like, oh, here, that's why all Jews should die. I still think there's some aspect that I would like, why are you here? Blah, blah, blah. They didn't want to talk to me, but I tried to get everything and I got all these different perspectives. I got some hippie boulder people who were saying nobody should be here. This is wrong. And then some others saying, I disagree with everything they're saying, but I'm glad they're here. And I pissed off at these other hippies who won't let them speak. So I, I put that out there. And my response to my journalism was, is very weird because I both won awards for stuff. I, none of those pieces, my best pieces did not get awards. My, it was just my basically green, just pablum pieces that did, but I would, I would get both. Sometimes I would get both sides of, of aisles politically who'd say, you did a good job there, blah, blah, blah. But I think most people were just confused because they're cool. Good, good, good. What? No. Why would he allow that? And then the other side too. So it's almost like my job was just almost making everyone uncomfortable. And ultimately, guess what? I don't think that, well, editors for sure don't like that because a lot of them are actually ideologues. So they're like this, I, I disagree with this. So there's that concept. And then if it's all about clicks and people don't click on things that don't just support their ideas, that's not even what the readers want. So I realize that journalism is not interested in the integral view. That's a tough situation in terms of our information ecology, because yeah, there's a lot of ideologues on all sides within the journalistic establishment. Yes, viewers and readers have become accustomed to having their tastes catered to rather than challenged. And also polarization sells because stress is addictive to people. It is. In all of that, who wants a balanced perspective? <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And that's why, so I at least try to have the titles that are not clickbaity because it, I deliver what is brought up in the title. So yeah, I find the polarization, is, it's an excellent point and, it, and it's kind of problematic because, all right, so I wrote this one article and this, this kind of blew my mind. So uh, it was right when Trump got into office and so everyone was talking about that. Of course, they still, people can't not talk about it. It's, it's an addiction. It's an obsession. It's unhealthy. But so they're talking about that. And then it was stuff to do with immigration and some immigration ban. So Trump, you know, so immigration stuff. And then it was around the women's march. So women's issues, right? So issues around uh, people in other countries who are trying to come here or people who are struggling, people of color are struggling. That was, that was a, a main grievance as well as women are getting short shrift, they don't have the opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, wow, I, I'm, I'm gonna see if I can find some solutions oriented stuff. So what I found was it was these women in tech thing, right? So there's a, there's a whole, there's not enough women in tech. Here's this women in tech thing that they set up. It was a hundred women, there was a few dudes there. I went to the event there and it was a, a hackathon or something like that. I'm not a tech guy, but basically it was coding all women doing coding. So, so there we have that, that here's women doing this thing. It's supporting more women in tech. It's dealing with this high paying job that more women are a part of check, check that box. Right. And then 
they were doing it for this charity that was around, I don't remember specifically, but around immigration and helping people who are refugees and stuff like that. So check that other box, right? This is, these are the two things that everyone's Facebook feed and Twitter, they're obsessed with. They can't stop talking about it. The, the women issue and the immigration issue, valid issues, problems. Oh, here are two things that are helping. Put that article out, wrote it. It got the least engagement of any piece I have ever written. I, I tried to redo it again a couple weeks later to put it out there. And then weeks after that or months after that, still no one was interested in it because it didn't hit their hot button thing. If I, if I wrote an article, a woman was denied a job in tech, they would love that. And then, or if it was like, they're not allowing these, these people into the country, they would love that. Here's a group that's actually doing it. By sharing your article, you can get more eyes on what these women are doing to expand their business. And you can get more eyes on this charity to literally give money, if not give money yourself. People were an interesting snooze. So that's when I realized people don't actually want to fix the problem, really. It's rough. We got a real difficult media sphere going on on this planet. One of the problems I come back to a lot is is this gap between statements and realities, which is tough when you're a reporter because, well, are you reporting on events or are you reporting what people say? Because sometimes those are close together and other times they're yeah. divergent. Good point. My lifetime, I've seen it go from letter to the editor to, uh, you know, video interviews with the average citizen to turn on the news and it's mostly commentators reporting on tweets they read. Yeah. But exactly. we get into this loop bubble of speech acts and we ignore what's going on on the ground. And there's a parallel with that in integral and developmental theories, which is yes. to what degree do we take people's statements as evidence of their levels, right? Because if you were Amber, you could easily say everything green says, but what you'd mean is green is my nation and I will attack any other nation that is different than me, yeah. right? Or orange modernists could easily use every word you know, that an environmentalist uses, but all they mean is buy my product and vote for me. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So how do we tease apart realities from words? It must be tough for a reporter. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know if that's our job as a reporter. I, I think, I think the term reporter, I don't even call myself a reporter. I, I like the term journalist just because it sounds cooler, but <laughs> it's reporting is your job is kind of to make a facsimile and put it out there. Now you decide. So I'd, I'd be open to other interpretations of that. And, but I do think, so activism is more an interpreting of that, but it's clear that you're coming from one perspective and that's all activism can be. But then there is, so it, this brings into my horror stuff and why I think I do it. So is, is fiction writing. So fiction writing, you can get at the depth of all those aspects by telling stories, by having the narrative. So you're not being as explicit as journalism and certainly not as this is the way only as activism that there's a, I don't, do I have an example of it right in front of me? There's this, yeah, here. It's this constant, I forget what it's called. And my fucking screen is not going to make it possible for you to see it. Oh, I saw it for a second. I saw kind of a circle. Uh, whatever. Well, anyway, it's a circle. And it's this concept of stuff that you would include in your, your novel, the theme of your novel. So basically, it would be like, one of the things I'm working on, I didn't actually utilize this. Um, but so at the top of it, it would be, so opposing concepts. So if 
so compassion versus selfishness, right? Or compassion versus malevolence. So you have that at different aspects of this, of this circle. And then you want to go around to the positive aspects of compassion. So maybe being empathetic, helping other people. And then as it gets closer to selfishness, it's maybe like self-love, but you're not quite, you're not quite in, you're not in malevolence. You're putting on your mask first in the airplane, that kind of thing. And then it goes into selfishness. And then there's, there's different levels of that, maybe a good selfishness and then getting into just pure egocentrism, take for yourself and actually harm others. And then it kind of comes back around to compassion. So the, the idea of that is to incorporate all the aspects of your theme in your, in your fiction, which it, it kind of is a bit of an integral concept there where you want to you wanna have all pieces. So you don't want to be like, here's why compassion is good. And then you want to even have, you know, why, why, here's my malevolence. And then here's where too much compassion is actually bad. Like you care so much that you, you are not effective or you, you know, your son is a murderer, but you love him. You're like, my son would never murder anyone. It's like, no, he has 15 women in his basement. He's a murderer lady. You know, mom, I know you have your mother love. That's too much compassion. So you have all of those pieces in the puzzle. And I think fiction can do that. And it does it in a way, almost more importantly, that is not as didactic. Good fiction is, it's just in the background and it's kind of asking questions and then you come to your own conclusions. So I let myself come to my own conclusion. I don't try to prove anything, but the thing is the problem. So I actually had this problem with this novel. I tried to get published where it's interesting. I was writing the novel when I, before I started to understand or or hear about spiral dynamics stuff and the different, but what my character basically was is he was unbeknownst to me was, was transitioning from green activist into more of a yellow teal altitude in terms of questioning aspects of it. Um, and in all fiction, the point is they have a shift. And what, what it really is, it's a developmental shift. I don't think most fiction writers know that, but that's kind of what's happening. And what was interesting is, so I put this, it was a horror, it had a whole horror theme, but behind it, it was about poking holes in ideologies. Don't believe in any ideology. They're a useful tool, know when to use it, know when to abandon it. I, I put this out to editors and publishers and, and basically they didn't know what to do with it. I didn't get any real consistent feedback, but one person was basically, he said, yeah, I, I don't, I, I feel like it's telling people what to think politically. And I was like, it's doing literally the opposite of that. But what happened was they saw one thing that was against their viewpoint and then they're like, no, no, no. And instead I was poking, I was showing good and bad in all of those activist things. So that he, he honed in on one aspect of it and said, this is the whole thing. And I was like, well, I wish you'd, you'd read more of it or, or whatever. But that's when I learned I need to, I definitely need to keep any political thing out of my, <laughs> my books because people aren't just going to, they're not going to tolerate it right now. So I'm working on another one that is completely divorced from that. And I'm getting into some deeper aspects that don't, that are behind the scenes, but the story comes first, the story and the characters, then you care about it. Because if you think we were all influenced by, probably our values were influenced by the children's books we read. And it was, why did it work? Because they were good books. They were good stories. They were cool characters, the Lorax, stuff like that. If it was just a dumb, boring thing, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah, no doubt the Lorax was probably the first depiction of environmentalism I recall as a kid. 
except maybe uh, we had this Canadian cartoon show called The Raccoons, where uh, an evil aardvark was always trying to cut the woods down. <laughs> Interesting. The evil aardvark uh, is always... Um, the circle, the complementarity of the different perspectives and balances on a single emotion. Yeah. That's interesting. And I wonder if that plays into your, you know, work with introverted men, because, you know, you must run into a lot of imbalanced versions of emotional energies where if it was just tweaked a little bit, it would be very productive, but it's holding them back because it's locked into one facet of that emotion. Yeah. Well, in that world, I tried to tread very lightly because I am not a psychologist. I'm not even a therapist. I'm, I'm a coach. And so most of what I do is I work it's kind of through dating stuff, but social skills. So a lot of it, some of it is folks who are on the spectrum. Some of it is just folks who have struggled. I have somebody who is just so introverted in my past that I just hadn't developed certain social skills and was just not as good at communicating who I was and putting myself out there as much. So I learned those skills piecemeal and on my own. And then I was and I focused it kind of on my dating. I was like, you know, I'm meeting some women, but I, I feel like I'm not really meeting the right women. This is not my potential. So I figured all this stuff out. And then I would hang out with people and they would ask my advice. And then someone was just, why don't you do this professionally? There's a lot of people who do this for money. They don't know what the hell they're doing. And you seem to it's like, okay. So I started doing that. So I am, but I'm careful because I'm not trying to psychoanalyze that. I always tell them that they, they probably should also be getting therapy. If there's anything their therapist says, I'd love to know. I can work with that. I'm, I don't pretend to be that. I do have a coach who works with me and she is a licensed professional counselor. But so, so yeah, I try not to go too deep into people's heads, but I do at least try to understand where they're coming from. And, and most of that, the folks I'm working with, I think, I think it's, I really think it's, it's folks in, in, in red to a certain degree and sometimes it's not even relevant to the spiral as much as they have other issues that are going on that just have these blocks. But that has been an ongoing struggle of like, what is the audience I'm trying to appeal to in terms of the spiral? Because most of, say, self-development, self-help kind of, that's hardcore orange. There's actually a lot of threads of red in there that are pretending to be orange. But let's just say a lot of that's orange. You know, putting the suit on, you got the... I don't cut that image and I have no interest in cutting that image. So a lot of the folks who are in that classic orange state are not really interested in what I have to offer, even though I do have some stuff that I tailor to some basics, but I I'm trying to, I, I'm discussing some other things that are, that are a little bit more than they're really interested in. But then there's folks who are in green. A lot of them are turned off because I do value aspects of orange. No, you need to work on aspects here. You, you need to not, you need to stop being in denial that the world's against you and you're a victim all the time. So integrating those aspects, you know, so my audience is, oh, only, only someone who's reached teal. And it's like, well, yeah, well, that's definitely not a very big audience. And a lot of those folks don't necessarily, uh, some of them could benefit from a coach, but anyway, so I'm trying to figure out basically what I'm doing is I'm utilizing these tools very cautiously behind the scenes I, I bring them up a little bit once in a while in terms of the coaching once in a while. I, I kind of simplify it in terms of one of the things I've done is saying, okay, you're going to want to date somebody or somebody who's going to appreciate you is probably going to be close to your wave of development, right? So, and also it's going to be a mess. Otherwise, if you're some, say, if you're some family values Christian, and then there's this coke sniffing stripper 
nothing against a coke sniffing stripper, but that's probably not going to agree a great match for you, right? So I don't say because it's a div different developmental level. I say subculture. So I kind of like I, I pepper it in with that. So maybe finding folks who have some similar values. I use the term values more and more because some of these guys, yeah, they're they're not going to be able to say succeed at attracting the businesswoman go-getter type. They're just they're not making the money for that. They're not that personality type. But maybe if they start getting more focused on deeper level work, spiritual things, they can go to some little meditation retreat. And there's a woman who would actually appreciate him because she's not as focused on superficial aspects and things like that. So I, I have been doing a, a podcast. My, I'm not, I'll not mention it because I actually use a a pseudonym for it. So if people want to find it on their own, they want to ask me personally, I'm happy to tell them about it. But uh, I, and it's not very hard to link my two personas together um, at all. But I, but I do, when people Google Josh Slosberg, I want them to come up with one stuff and, and not the other stuff. But um, I did do a podcast that I temporarily discontinued that I'm going to start up again for that because I've been working on this one product. But the last one I did was evolve, evolve yourself, evolve your dating. And I realized not that's been my experience, right? Getting to the point where, okay, this, she's cute, but she is not good for me. And maybe she even appreciate me, but this is not, I should not be dating these women anymore. So realizing that more and more and then finding, okay, cool. These are the women I, I mesh with more. And then realizing that can help just for people who are maybe at, at a certain level in dating, but also who are very much struggling because they're, they're trying to appeal in a world that they're not going to have a, they're not going to have a chance to really make an imprint. So that's where I've been incorporating some of that. But I, 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 I think being very cautious because a lot of the folks, let's say in orange, anything that sniffs of spirituality, and I don't even like that term spirituality, but they, it's a turnoff to them. So I am trying to navigate the audience in that regard. Still working on that. <laughs> Interesting. It seems to me like there are, uh, on the one hand, there must be people who simply are reluctant to get into the situations where they would spontaneously adapt to being in relationship in a more complicated way. There must be people who are um, lacking the skills and habits they need in order to come across to and appreciate other people. But this idea about matching is really interesting to me. I don't know if you ever read a book called The Art of Raising a Puppy. There's a group of monks that live on this island and they've been breeding dogs for centuries. Oh, I've heard of my aunt has been yeah. into that. And they, yeah. the opening to this book, I always love because it says, you know, it's a big factor how you train your dog. It's huge. But that's not as important as getting the right kind of the right breed for your lifestyle. Uh, because if, if you if that dog needs to be walked seven hours a day and you don't have that time, it's never gonna work. Right. Don't get <laughs> and a so good this whole idea, you know, not to associate people on dates with dogs, but there's this sense that uh, you have to try to figure out what is a reasonable match zone for your structure and temperament. And it seems like some you know, spiral dynamics into larger maps could really be helpful in that regard. I found it super helpful because that's the way that I can just screen out women and not in, in my life and not just fall for a pretty face. I'm like, okay, she's pretty. That's cute. That gets her in the door. Does she have an understand? You know, she doesn't have to know spiral dynamics or whatever, but where is she at? And, and sadly, yeah, it's definitely narrowed my dating pool 
because I rule it out. And I don't know if that's good either. There, there might be, maybe it's okay to be at different waves of development, but I think ultimately it's not even me rejecting them. It's like, I'm going to re reject you in advance so you don't reject me later because I'm going to be into some shit that you're not going to be into, not necessarily <laughs> sexually, but maybe that too. So trying to, I'm not going to, because I'm older now. So now that I'm 41, whatever, when you're 22, date whoever will have you, you know, that's fine. So you can figure out. But at this point, you know, in my, in my 40s, to be doing that is quite, quite childish. And right now with COVID, it, that screws everything up as well. But it's been a good time to step back and be like, okay, can I relate to this person and at the same time? Maybe maybe she is able to be moving. Is she open enough to be moving? The, maybe, you know, I probably shouldn't be. My counterpart, for instance, is not a coke-sniffing stripper. I've dated them in the past, and I've enjoyed it and have found some common ground. I'm not into coke or stripping, but there was, there was common ground. I, I can access enough of my red that that's, that's totally fine. But, you know, ultimately, that, that's not that's not what my counterpart is. So looking for your counterpart in, in that well, in that realm, but you do narrow, you do narrow your playing field. And I don't think everyone has that luxury necessarily. So I go back and forth on that, but, but yeah, incorporating some of the other aspects. So one of the other things to sort of shift the topic, but just to, to, cause I, I talk things out to make sense of my own world, but in terms of my horror writing thing, so whatever, I, I try to incorporate integral stuff into the the storytelling but i i helped create something called the denver horror collective and i'm trying to utilize aspects of at least spiral dynamic stuff and maybe some integral stuff in, in terms of how i've structured it because it's a collective so it started off basically just as a critique group for horror writers because there weren't any in 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 the area so i created that with some other folks and that was cool it started expanding expanding we started having events publishing anthologies doing webinars all sorts of different things but the structure itself right so this collective concept that's a very that's green right that's the essence of green to a, to a large degree so i wanted everyone to have some say so we have this steering committee of nine people and we, we have this open vote kind of thing where we haven't even had to define too much because everyone has been so reasonable that we can be like, yeah, this is good enough. And what's your concern here? So that, that I feel like is a very green thing. So for a while when I was creating, I was like, all right, so is this going to be pure green in that the, the group just decides everything? It's like, well, what I realized was a lot of the duties were falling on me. And then somebody had to do the financial stuff. And eventually I was like, well, I, should, I need to make either a nonprofit or an LLC. I'll make it into LLC. There has to be a name on it. All right, that's me. And so I realized, well, I, I am. So what, what broke out of the green thing is like, well, I'm kind of the person in charge, but I'm also not. So what has helped me is, yeah, I can make a final decision. The group can be like, we need to do this. And I could be like, guess what? It's not going to happen. I have never done that. And I don't expect that to happen. And in fact, my viewpoints, a lot of times are shot down. I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. And then a lot of the things we end up doing are not my ideas. So, so the idea that I'm in charge and, and is, I'm still ultimately in charge of the game, but I, I read this book. So it was the Tao of leadership, which is basically just the Tao Te Ching. And then each of the little sections were rewritten for leadership stuff, boss stuff. And a lot of it is 
you know, the concept of lead from behind. What is the point? The point of the entity is the entity, not, not your thing. Obviously, if there's something that I think conflicts with all of that, I'm going to step in. I, I almost haven't had to. And, I, and I, I credit that for how we keep expanding. And there, there's somebody who came up with this new idea for a new anthology and they're editing it. I'm sort of overseeing aspects of it, but it's, it's happening on its own. So I'm, it's not quite a model that, that I've seen before. It's not quite top down, but there is that top down there. So that's been my experiment recently and that's been working. And, and I think a lot of the folks who are involved with it are, you know, very at the, at the orange and green altitudes, but both, and both feel comfortable because it's enough hippy dippy feeling enough where everyone gets a say, but then there's also a business component to it. And there is enough structure and like, no, we are trying to accomplish this. We're trying to, we're going to get on the Denver post bestseller list through these methods, which we did and it worked. So that's been my other experiment. That's interesting because there's a lot of, um, you know, when people think about green, they often think about it in a kind of premature way, like as if uh, uh, the opening bid of a bunch of green people was the entire essence of the green meme. Hmm. And really, we've just sort of started seeing it, right? It hasn't had the 6,000 years that the amber meme had. That's a good point. And so we, we don't know exactly whether we're transcending green or whether we're developing it into its full form. And one of the arguments that yeah. people, one of the critiques against second tier is often that people who get there quickly have zoomed through the other stages and not experienced their richness. Oh, yeah. Right? So that you... If you only did the minimum amount of green to get to second tier, how much do you really understand about it? So I, when, earlier when you were saying, uh, you know, taking the inside and the outside and the loggers perspective and all these other perspectives into account on ecology, um, what is it you think that people often miss about the green perspective and about the radical environmental perspective generally? Like, do you think there's something that isn't fully richly enough appreciated about that point of view? You mean by non-radicals? By non-radicals, by, by let's say orange or teal. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, a, a lot of good stuff you were saying there. But so I think, well, that's the problem though. Some of the, the radical stuff sometimes is not really green. <laughs> it's when I was an activist, I definitely was because I believe there's threads. And so like, I, I personally don't believe, you know, Oh, you're everything you're doing is at this level, obviously the different lines of development. And I think there's probably even more threads of like how you feel about cactuses. Like, I think that's probably a thread, like an actual thread of development. Like where are you at on the spiral in terms of how you feel about cactuses, but the cactus cactus, subline of the biocentric line. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I think that's a very important one. But so I definitely know that some of my early activism was from a place of red. It was from yeah. anger it was an egocentric thing. At least I was using that for what I thought was good. And I think largely was. And, um, and, but then I, I think there was some green stuff going on there. And yeah, who knows right now, my environmentalism might still just be a more matured version of green. Who knows? I, I think a lot of it is at least, or, or even an image. This is what really interests me. It's like a person like you who can self analyze and self critique and say, look, some of my activism, even though it was on the right topics, was coming from a lower, more primitive place. I've yeah. moved on since then. But nonetheless, I probably still have some instincts that might be perceived as radical and primitive by others, but I actually don't think they are. I actually think they're normal, necessary, 
higher level ethical responses to the ecological situation. Yeah, it's, I think it's all happening all at once and it's, it's hard to parse it all apart. I'm sure there's still some red aspects to what I'm doing. I'm, still, I'm sure there's still some egocentrism, whether it's a healthy version of that or not. But yeah, the term radical, it's like, well, what does that even mean? So that, that's a hard thing to, to determine. But say the idea of we need to protect wilderness and leave these landscapes alone. So if, if you want to say that that is a, the radical perspective, which I personally do share and I think is still valid. Yeah, I mean, the idea, if you're, it depends on what levels you're at. But in terms of, let's say, if you're, in the, if you're at an amber-blue religious viewpoint and you believe in God and stuff like that, creation, right? So this is the creation of the Lord and you think he put it here so you can shit all over it? Probably not, right? He wants you to protect that and steward it. So that's one way I think at least to appreciate it from there. Cause they're not going to, they're not going to necessarily say you have to appreciate nature for its intrinsic worth. That I think is valid. And I think I, I I'm at a, a wave of development where I can at least pretend that I think that. So I don't know if I can say, start caring about the right of a river. They're not going to, but then, so then in orange, it's like, hey, guess what? You want to have your business going, you need to have these intact waterways so you can, whatever, you know, whatever the example would be there. That's, there's tons of things. You need to have clean water for, in order to, let's just say that na- nice rivers can attract more of the right of your uh, employees into the area. And those are the higher quality of living near your factory or whatever. And so that's why you need to protect a river or whatever. And then, so getting people to see through their different perspective, but I don't, it's almost like you just have to, you almost have to wait for them to get there and, and speak, speak in their language. I always think, and a lot of folks in the spiral dynamics and integral world push against this. And I think usually correctly, but not always the idea of, well, let's bring people up in the spirals. Like, no, you just have to let it be. It's like, all right, most of the time that's probably true. Or you want to just encourage a more healthy version that's in their current V meme. Okay. But I do think, I do think we do have at least a duty to remove blockages to the spiral. And there are shitloads of blockages right now. For instance, I would say most of the environmental movement a lot of the environmental movement is a turnoff to, or let's just say even most of a lot of social justice and environmentalism, all causes that I have supported, continue to support, have been a longtime activist. I was out in the streets protesting, dealing with police issues, getting beat up by police, suing the police, winning, all of those issues before it was cool, you know, whatever. Like, obviously, I'm not as old as the people were doing in the 60s, but I was doing this in the early 2000s. And so I'm on board with all that stuff. But here's the thing, when most of that way that that is being put out there, folks in orange, it's not appealing to them because it's mostly the toxic components that are put out there. And they also, orange can see a lot of the hypocrisy in green, even though they're not at the green altitude. So I I end up watching a lot of YouTube stuff that is kind of orange critiquing green because it's like spot on. But then I eventually get tired of it because it's like, yeah, well, because you don't actually even care about those issues very much. So I'm more like the critique that I love the natural world. I love, I care about the climate and our climate movement, but here's where the climate movement is ineffective versus, eh, the climate is not a real issue and here's why they're dumb. They might be right about why they're dumb and off, but not really getting at the deeper aspects. 
So a healthy version of environmentalism is what I'd like to see. It can be both, I, ironically, I believe it needs to have both stronger stances in terms of what makes sense environmentally in terms of, no, we need to set off certain areas off limits or whatever. We need to act for real with climate, but not so delusional that it is, they they have no solution. So it's like, this is the most urgent thing. We're all going to die immediately. Well, first of all, that's not a great message to motivate people. Then it's like, and this is the worst ever it's ever been. That's why put up some solar panels and we solve the problems. Like, really? I'm okay with solar, but that's definitely not so even people in orange are like, wait a second, you just say we're all going to burn to a crisp. And if I put up some solar panels, we're going to win bullshit. So stronger stance, yet a bit more appreciative of other levels and just getting a little bit better at the communication and the conversation and not just coming from that place of anyone who doesn't believe with me, believe me is evil. Because I think a lot of the environmental movement, a lot of leftist causes, of which I helped perpetuate for years and still support to a large degree it's really blue amber and and red it's not actually genuine green that's in there when you look at models like spiral dynamics or interval um, are you at all concerned that the the sense of a simple developmental ladder and the notion of squares is non-representative of the organic nature of reality or is it just a, a nice, useful, helpful simplification? It's a tool. So I do think that you can get, I've almost thought, so where are you on the spiral in terms of your view of the spiral? <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> this is how it is. You know, Beck's grave model, Beck's grave model is the only model. Anything Ken Wilber has to say is bullshit. That's almost, that's blue, right? That's an absolutist <laughs> kind of perspective there. So yeah, it's a tool, right? So you use a, a Phillips head screwdriver when there's a Phillips head screw. Otherwise, you don't. So I'm always looking for things that don't get represented. The, these two models, though, I found out are the most comprehensive that I've come across. And I do think they're at least useful in almost every circumstance. And I'm sure there, there are things that they don't understand. And of course, yeah, a, a this is not where in nature does this happen. But I, I, don't, I don't think that that matters as much as long as you realize it's it's the map not the territory and of course the spiral component is a bit closer to how literal nature does operate but i still think yeah the integral tool is, is it's i mean here's the thing it's our human brains trying to make things sense of things beyond our human brain so that's it's all going to be limiting in and of itself right until we're until we merge with the cosmos well, i haven't <laughs> Uh, let's talk a little bit about peak experiences and flow states, because I imagine um, that you have a lot of peak experiences in natural environments. I would imagine that horror writing involves uh, moments of narrative in which people's ordinary notions are radically exceeded by the cosmos in which they live. And I would also imagine that people who are working therapeutically to overcome themselves and find happiness in relationships or other areas require flow states and peak experiences in order to catalyze what they've understood and actually act on it. Yeah. Well, there, there are so many ways all that can apply. I need to get going in a little bit, but uh, yeah, let's, let's see if I can make any sense of, of that. So yeah, in terms of the natural world, for sure. I mean, peak experience, I, I go on my, 
my wilderness hike, my wild hike every week. I live now closer to the mountains. This is not actually where I live, but it looks a lot like that. And I can literally see mountains that look like that. If I walk three minutes, I can see them. I'm close to the will. So I go every week out into the wilderness and sometimes maybe I eat some edibles, who knows? And I do have some very, pretty much every single week have versions of peak experiences. Sometimes it's directly merging with nature. Sometimes it's that as a background. And I'm just having my thoughts flow, but that's super, you know, just driving past or even, you know, on the way to the hiking trail, you know, much less when I'm out there, like just these bright green meadows and just like, holy shit. You know, I, I'm constantly pretty much on a weekly basis and now almost on a daily basis because I live out here. I just am just amazed and I'm like, I did it. This, this is it. It doesn't, it doesn't get any better than this. Here it is. I'm here. I'm, I've, I've done it. I found it. And of course that passes and, and stuff like that. And in terms of getting into, you know, a, a flow state when, when I'm hiking, I just like, I'm built to hike. I'm lanky, but strong. And so I just move and it. It's just, I just merge into that experience where I, sometimes what happens is it's like four hours have passed and, and I haven't even noticed it because I've just been so sucked into it. So that's been super, super important for me in the, in the dating world and in the introvert coaching world stuff. The, the idea of flow state is kind of getting into where you can go up to say a woman that you want to talk to and just it's coming naturally but usually that has to go through a lot of skill building to really get there. You have to have the mechanics and the basic stuff, but then ultimately it's sort of just letting go where just stuff comes out. You're not mechanically thinking, I don't teach people here are lines that you have to say, maybe some structures of here's an interaction, but then it just goes, but let it go. Just let, so that that's an experience. I've experienced that. And I think, yeah, it's very common for in dating where that's, that's what happens. And, and you do have, it's a, the flow state and then the peak experience is just, you know, wow, I'm really connecting with this woman or sometimes it's just, I'm horny and she's pretty, but so maybe that's a more superficial level of it, but it sure feels like a peak experience at the time. And, um, and then you realize there's different levels of relationships and they can go deeper and deeper and maybe they're not as flashy, but they're more genuine and, and, and lasting than anything else. And then in the horror world, so writing is the example of the flow state for me. Um, that that's another thing where just if I get into it, I, I work in little thirty-minute increments usually. And if I'm working on my fiction and pretty much any writing, just pure writing, it's just like ding, 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 ding. That was how was that thirty minutes? And it just blows past because I'm just getting into it. And because I, I I struggle sometimes with writing. It's it's not easy for me, but if you find that you got to find that right spot, right? Where it's not too easy, but then it's, it's challenging enough to engage you. And sometimes, so, it, but, I, but it's not, I'm not even aware of it when it's happening. So I, I can't even be in the writing and notice it, but after I'm done, so I, I get a, a high from, so when people ask me, do you like writing? I'm like, yeah, writing's okay, but I love having written. <laughs> so I write something and then I'm like, Ah, and it's like, it's almost like a, it's like a, like I got high. It's like I, I, I took a few shots uh, of liquor or something like that. It feels so good to have created something 
And that is that feeling of just putting it out there. And, and there's probably some level of egocentrism to it, but it's not even, I mean, I felt that for things that I haven't even shown anybody. So it can't be just about ego. And, and even with a writer, it's interesting because yeah, there's plenty of ego in a writer, but so I play music also, right? So if you go up on stage and you play a song like that, and you get that instant just love back for really doing nothing, you know, not, not to downplay music, but like I write these amazing articles, nobody gives a shit. I go up there and play a Grateful Dead song and you love me, give me a break. But still, it's like that, I could see how that could feed my ego. I'm pretty much over that, but that's easy. But when you write a book, all you're doing is you're, you're putting your ideas out there. And unless you do a reading or something like that, you don't actually even see the people's love or anything like that. Maybe a comment. You just know that the ideas are getting out there. So that's, that's an interesting feeling as well that maybe that is still, it, it can be egotistical and like in terms of, ah, I'm infecting the world with my ideas, but it does come at a, at a different, a different level. So that's kind of been my experience in that right. realm. Thank you. Um, before we go, uh, two final questions. One is, um, who do you like? What do you listen to podcast wise? Like who do you think is doing a good job in terms of content or aesthetics? And second of all, when I talk to the next person on this series, what do you think I should ask them? Ooh, okay. Well, that's a lot of responsibility. So, well, I like what you're doing and I'm definitely going to be checking out more of it. I just recently become aware of it. So th that to me is, is pretty fascinating, the stuff that you're touching upon. But yeah, anything that really is challenging the status quo, but doing it while including those values. So because I was a dissident leftist for so long, I ended up growing out of a lot of the leftist movement because as soon as I started pinpointing how we're losing and how we can be more effective at actually the causes, I started becoming the black sheep. I was like, wait a second here. I'm not, I'm not, I'm critiquing to improve. And they're like, whatever, right winger. I mean, that's not exactly the experience I had, but some, some, sometimes that that's what I get. And it's like, okay, th this is clearly silly. Um, but so I, I had, you know, gravitated to over the last several years, I, I'll, I disagree with everyone. So on something, so it's very easy for me to listen to somebody who are like 99%, ugh, but that 1%. So, you know, things like folks from the intellectual dark web, for instance, I, I resonate with a lot of what's said, probably nothing, none, no individual in that do I agree with 100%. In fact, most of them not a ton of the time, but they, but they're these dissident way of thinking. And that I do think sometimes touches on integral aspects and sometimes is maybe just a very astute, intelligent orange. And so I was, I would listen to some of that stuff. I'm like, cool. It's critiquing the movements in the way that I had, but then sometimes some of it would be you know, like a Ben Shapiro, for instance, who is, he's a right, he's a conservative and I disagree with most conservative values. I, I see a lot of validity in a lot of the, the stuff there, but he would, he would point out, here's where this leftist movement that I've been a part of is, is failing and it's silly. And I was like, shit, I said exactly that. But then he's like, because none of that matter. And I was like, oh, well, that's where we, we part paths there. I do think that this is an issue worth addressing. And I do have that compassion for these folks. And I don't think it's not a problem. So what's been nice is when I started to understand integral and, and 
at least aspects of it in spiral dynamics, I could start gravitating towards just those who I, who have transcended and included who can critique green, but clearly love green. Right. And so I'm, I'm more and more open to those aspects. And, and I think it's also clear that there's no purity, right? Just because somebody, somebody can be talking from that altitude for a minute and then just go into some other thing. So, so it's not about finding purity. So I'm trying to find these little gems here and there. So what that means in that long-winded way is I'm listening to a lot of different stuff. If, if it is, I'm listening to the black sheep inside amongst the black sheep, basically. And so whatever is out there that crosses my path, I, I find I try to listen to everything from comedy to science stuff. I, I don't listen to a ton of writing stuff because I'm just like, that's boring. <laughs> I just want to write. I'll listen to people talking about writing. But uh, so that, that's been a lot of my, my stuff. And more and more it is around Taoism stuff and Eastern thought, which I'm not a religious person. So I'm definitely not coming at it from the blue, like, Master, cane me while I do your bidding and look and bow to your picture. Ugh, I don't like that stuff at all. But there is some deep, deep wisdom in a lot of Eastern thought stuff. So I end up gravitating to a lot of those folks in the, the mindfulness and, and just Taoist world. And so it's all over the place and trying to find that connection. But in terms of, so what question, what question I would ask? That's right. I'm doing a series. So there'll be a next guy. Next. What would you be curious to find out from him? Assuming he's doing something similar to you, trying to bring forth this kind of mix of values and insights in some kind of internet format. Okay. So I'll go deep here and reveal my soul. How do you deal with the alienation? <laughs> How do you deal with, it's more self alienation, but, but the, I don't, I don't think I'm, listen, I, I'm probably smarter than most people. That's, but I'm sure as hell not in the top echelon of intelligence. So it's not about that. It's, it's that I've been willing to examine certain aspects and then that makes me, so then, so then I've taken on some other aspects in my worldview that a lot of folks who are way, way smarter than me have not. So what ends up happening is I, I not that I leave them behind, but the, I can still relate to them. It's like they're less able to relate to me. And so then ultimately they're not as interested in interacting or there's just more conflict. They're like, oh, you're selling out our movement. And I'm like, well, I, I don't think I am, but I think I'm actually becoming more effective than I ever was. So I feel alienated. So, so I would say the question is, how do you deal with the fact that nothing to do with intelligence, just you're stumbling on new pieces of information. You're starting to integrate these worldviews and then the people around you are not. And then you find your potential audience or connection base simultaneously expanding, right? Like now I can talk to anyone, but in terms of really being able to resonate, shrinking down to this little pool puddle in the desert. <laughs> so yeah, if you can figure that out for me, I would appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful question. I appreciate that. And this has been fantastic. I like the mixture of themes and energies you're bringing forward. And I appreciate you letting everybody uh, get a sense of the flavor of who you are. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to run my mouth. And this is actually, it's been like a bit of a therapy session because it has been helping me draw some of those threads, being able to talk to somebody who kind of gets that stuff. I'm able to, to combine these aspects. So it is helping me integrate so thank you. <laughs> <laughs>